welcome once again to Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and we're glad to have you with us, as well as glad to have our guest this week, Lisa Hendy. Lisa is a 1985 graduate from Notre Dame, and she's spent her career really doing a lot of the same things that I get to do. She's an author, a speaker, a podcast host herself. So, Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Oh, Dan, it's so great to be with you. I'm glad to speak with you today. We usually like to begin at people's early life and beginning. So to start, could you please tell us about your hometown, some of your early years, things that you remember that are important to you? Sure. It's all circled to Notre Dame. It's so interesting. So my parents met in high school. They were both born and raised in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So okay. kind of in the, in the shadow of campus. Yes. And they were high school and college sweethearts. And they got married really shortly after their college graduation. My dad always wanted to go to Notre Dame, but he's the eldest of seven and his family couldn't mm. afford it. Yeah. So he always said that his eldest son would go to the university. Well, 10 months after they married, they had me and (laughs) (laughs) I was a girl. Yeah. So interestingly, shortly after I was baptized, like I I think I was about six weeks old, my parents decided to go out to California for a friend's wedding and they put me in the back of a car and drove to California and they really never looked back. I grew up while I was born in Fort Wayne. I grew up in Southern California. Yeah. And how did that shape your kind of existence What were some things about Southern California that maybe were different from Fort Wayne, Indiana? Yeah, so it's really interesting. At that time, so I was born in 1963, Mm -hmm. and at that time, California was filled up with a lot of people who actually came from other places. But my parents landed in the part of California called Orange County, Mm -hmm. and pretty quickly, even before they found a house, they found their first parish which was the parish that I grew up in. It's called St. Barbara's. It's in Santa Ana, California. Mm -hmm. And our pastor there was actually an Irish priest, Monsignor Michael Collins. And he was um, born and raised in County Limerick and came to the U.S. as a missionary in the 40s. Yeah. And he was really seeding this parish. It really started off just meeting, I think, some auxiliary building or whatever. But my parents were some of the earliest people that that went there and that became really our spiritual home. And it was the elementary school that I went to. And Father Collins was actually, I'm going to say he was such a huge part of our family. Every family Mm -hmm. has kind of their favorite priest. And well, he was a favorite for many. He was definitely our family priest, so much so that he said my wedding Mm. at the university and baptized my children. And we've also been over a few times to visit his family in Ireland too. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect name for Ireland, my, my father, Michael Collins. So in terms of kind of the growth and development of your faith, do you have any memories of when you began to realize how important that your faith was to you? I'm so blessed that I'd say it was actually really from early days. Well, I don't have a ton of um, early preschool kind of memories. I definitely remember that school and our church were really a focal point for our family. I'm the eldest of five children that my parents had, and we were all educated in Catholic schools. And 
Those early days at St. Barbara's, well, our earliest teachers were actually poor clarinets who came from Mexico. I see. And then when I was, I think in sixth grade, we received sisters, Franciscan sisters who came from Syracuse, New York. Interestingly, mm. from the same area that St. Mary Ann Cope, it was her order that came mm. to us. But school, church, very intermingled. I think I had like two outfits outside of my little plaid <laughs> school girl uniform. Right. And every Sunday, it was no question that we were at mass together as a family. Mm. And I'm like a an immediate post-Vatican II kid, so I don't really remember mass and yes. Latin, although I'm sure I was there a few times. I really remember a really vibrant mass. And even in elementary school, I got super involved in music ministry at church. There was a teacher or a woman in our parish who, her name was Mrs. Terreri. She was a mom of seven boys. And she so loved mass and music that she offered to teach anybody at our school to play guitar hmm. as long as you would play at mass. Sure. So... Pretty early on, I think beginning in about sixth grade, I started playing guitar. And at one point, she had three pews of junior high students playing at mass. Can you imagine oh what that's like? <laughs> That's tremendous. But it was it was such a beautiful thing. I really believe in the domestic church and sure. the fact that I'm so blessed that my parents were my primary faith formators. But I had people all around me that were not just the teachers at our school or Father Collins or the sisters, it was the other families that we interacted with mm -hmm. who were really so integral in this idea of living out the faith in our home. So church wasn't just someplace that you went on Sunday morning. It was something that you did all week long. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that communal aspect is, is so important and you feel it when it's there and you feel its absence sometimes when families feel like maybe they're trying to do this in a countercultural way, and it can be a lonely experience. But then when you get in with a group of other families who are also striving to share the deposit of faith, to make regular worship part of their schedule, to pray together, all those domestic churches coming together uh, on Sundays at a parish, I think that's really heartening to people to keep going, even through some of the challenges that people might face in our time. Yeah, I definitely didn't realize how spoiled I was growing up hmm. with that until I was away from that. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about time at Notre Dame. But for me, really, in elementary school and then in high school, I went to a high school called Modern Day, which mm -hmm. is a great feeding ground for many students that have gone to Notre Dame as right. well. But even in high school... We had daily communion service at lunchtime, and that was always just part of what I did every day and mm. did music for that. And it was just such an integral part of life. And I always say I don't think I had a lot of theological training as a child, mm -hmm. but I certainly knew God loves me un unconditionally. And that means that comes with responsibility to love other people. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's well said. So you talked about that it was your dad's wish that his oldest son went to Notre Dame, but then he had a daughter. Did he then say, well, I want you to go to Notre Dame? Or how did that desire come about between you and him and your mom and your, the rest of your family? Yeah, it's really interesting. Every year we would go back to Fort Wayne to visit our grandparents who still lived in, in Indiana. Uh -huh. and. It was just organically part of my upbringing. And then I think it really became serious in high school. That was part of the conversation. So 
daddy was sort of with mom's encouragement always encouraging me to do my best in school academically mm-hmm. and to be involved in activities. I don't think it was to the extent that parents definitely are <laughs> pushing their kids to yeah. these days, but it was definitely right. part of the conversation, which was, okay, you're going to apply to Notre Dame. And then what's the other Catholic school that you'd like to apply to as your mm-hmm. backup? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, there wasn't a lot said about taking me around to visit different colleges or the way that things are now or how I know I did it with my own sons. It was just like, an understood thing. Mm -hmm. And I feel so grateful now when I look back and know how challenging it was to get admitted even back then. And Mm -hmm. it's nothing like it is now for students to get into the university, but Mm -hmm. it was just sort of this thing. And interestingly, if we did ever visit campus when I was a child, I have no memory of it. Hmm. So in my mind, I didn't really go there for a visit until they dropped me off at college. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, California is not close to Indiana. Was that a scary moment for you when you finally came here? Was there a sense of you still felt at home given the Catholic nature of the place? How was that? Yeah, it was really interesting. So first of all, I remember the drive across the country. My parents had, like many folks in those days, we had a big RV. Right. <laughs> and all my siblings piled into the, we all piled into the motorhome. Like I said, I have younger brothers and sisters, and my youngest brother was born when I was 14. So that means that there was a four-year-old in that motorhome. Yeah. And interestingly, when we pulled onto campus... I think I was like wildly unprepared for what it was actually going to be like. And the one thing that I do remember is there's all this wonderful freshman orientation activities. And so being really, fully immersed in that and sort of thinking that I didn't really want to hang out with my parents, which is a really (laughs) mean thing to say. But that wasn't really an issue because my mom and dad had so many friends in my class who were bringing their kids to college. And so as it turned out, in a way, my daddy's wish kind of came true because every time that they connected with campus, and that's a really big part of our family story, I have other siblings that went to Notre Dame as well, but every time they came, they were seeing their friends and close friends. So Mm -hmm. it was like a little bit of a reunion for them. And Mm -hmm. I think... I didn't really even have a real coat. I know I didn't have a hairdryer, which was ridiculous <laughs> to come to South Bend without a hairdryer. And I think I didn't really understand what parietals was or anything like that, but mm-hmm. you learn pretty quickly. Yeah. How was campus even in the years that have passed since then? How was it different back then to what you see as you visited now as a parent and, and as an alum in these years? It's so different. So I started off in Lewis. Shout out to Lewis, which mm-hmm. is awesome. And it <laughs> it was really an interesting thing there. I haven't been into the rooms recently, but I think that dorm actually used to be a convent. It did. So this like really tiny closet. And I rolled in with, I think, probably four steamer trunks worth of all the really cute outfits that I thought <laughs> before I realized that college was just going to be jeans and a Notre Dame sweatshirt. Right. A lot of clothes. The and habit was, of the Notre Dame student, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and that was very different. And then I was actually a French and government devil major. Mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of time like in Oshag and I was really big on studying in the library. I say studying, but I think I was actually doing a fair amount of going down to the basement and chatting in those yeah. days. Too. Yeah. So in the places that I spent on campus related to where I lived, where my friends live, tons of friends in St. Ed's, which probably isn't surprising given it's 
proximity to Lewis. Mm -hmm. But pretty quickly, I fell into the habit of daily mass at Notre Dame. And so either it was, we didn't have it at Lewis, but either it was in St. Ed's or I would go to the crypt most days for mass in the Basilica. Wonderful. As you progressed in your Notre Dame career, were there classes or activities that you got involved in that helped you start to shape what you were going to do after your time at Notre Dame? That's very interesting. I said I was a French major to start, and I came into the university knowing that I wanted to study French. And my plan, which did happen, was to visit and study in Angers my sophomore year. So that Mm -hmm. was an amazing study year abroad. And it kind of shaped my time because I felt I met my dearest friend during the time that I was in France. And so when I came back to campus, I moved into Walsh and spent my last two years in Walsh. But during my time in Angers, I had an opportunity to go to what was in the Soviet Union. And for a short one of our breaks, I went over there and I really fell in love with that. So when I came back to campus, I added my double major in Gov and then I also started studying Russian Hmm. and pretty got pretty immersed in my Russian studies. So it turned out that after I graduated, I went and spent a semester at what was then Leningrad State University studying pretty intense Russian program too, which has absolutely nothing to do what I do in my daily life. (laughs) But I do think that studying language was part of God's plan because certainly the studies that I had in grammar and construction of sentences and paragraphs and in standing up and speaking when you were uncomfortable definitely directly plays into what I do now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just do it in English now. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) A little more comfortable that way. But uh, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, If you only speak one language, you study it in school, but you're a native speaker. But when you're coming at a language already being fluent in, in, in your in your original language, you learn more about the structure and the conjugation of verbs, but also the kind of the style and the beauty and the rhythm that different languages have that don't always translate across different things. Definitely. And it definitely, those years, all of that travel during the time that I was in France. And I think about now that we traveled with no cell phones and no internet. And <laughs> you just sort of say, you'd look in the, the little Let's Go Europe book that we all had and agree to meet friends at some train station in Germany or Spain yeah. or wherever. And it just kind of happened, but it definitely implanted <laughs> me. One of my major blessings in my work is that I'm a pretty avid traveler and I've gotten to travel quite a lot for my work. And that, yeah. th- those, that love and affection for travel definitely came out of my time when I was in France. Good, good. And then what was the next step after Notre Dame and your time studying in Russia? How did you discern what that next step would be? So the biggest part of the next step was actually happened in my junior year. And it kind of is interesting. Um, When I came back to campus, I mentioned that I was living in Walsh Mm -hmm. and I um, was crossing campus or exiting Walsh one day. And I was with a group of my friends and I think there was an SYR. Well, they still have SYRs on They do, yes. So there was an SYR coming up and I was still relatively recently back from France and 
I didn't really know anyone to ask to that dance. And this young man, who I considered very handsome, crossed in front of Walsh, and my friends knew him, and mm-hmm. his name was Greg, and they stopped to chat with him. And it, my goodness, I was immediately struck by him. Hmm. And I know the exact tree that we were standing under. <laughs> and so after we said goodbye to him, I said to my friends, can you ask him if he could go to the SPR with me? Well, long story short, he was not available because he was actually dating somebody else at the time. Uh-huh. And we kind of went on with our life. But then we reconnected in our senior year, in the fall of our senior year at Legends, which was, we then referred to it as Senior Bar back then. And Greg was on the bar staff. If you can imagine that they used to let the seniors (laughs) run that place, manage it, and the bar staff, it was sort of like being... I'm going to say like rushing for a fraternity and they really lived at the bar and ran everything. Greg was a bartender and one night he was working the front door and I came in and he checked my ID and we started just chatting and long story short, that became a very, Mm -hmm. um, but we, it was fall of senior year. We had both already made our plans about what we would do after graduation. He was going on to medical school and he was subsequently admitted at Vanderbilt Mm -hmm. and I was planning to go to and did attend a semester at the American Graduate School of International Management. It's called Thunderbird, and it's in Arizona. Okay. So we spent our first semester post-grad after I came back from Russia on different campuses. But we realized pretty quickly this is not going to work. Yeah. (laughs) So we were engaged at Thanksgiving of that year. And interestingly, we called campus the Monday after Thanksgiving and asked about being married in the Basilica. And they had a cancellation for the next May 31st, so it was wow. six months later. And there we went. A year after we graduated, we were married in the Basilica. Father Collins came and set our wedding. And mm-hmm. it was sort of like a one-year reunion for all of our <laughs> friends who came to campus. And we really never looked back. It was just so amazing. And I feel so blessed that, you know, since May 31st of 1986, I've been married to my best friend who mm-hmm. loves university and all she stands for as much as I do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What ended up happening then was that I here I am like going off into moving to Nashville with zero work experience because okay. I hadn't really had a job <laughs> and a French major. <laughs> so I stopped off at the personnel office at the Vanderbilt University campus and asked them basically what can I do with this degree and they ended up hiring me in HR and that was where I, I spent the early part of my career was working mm-hmm. in recruiting and human resources and pretty quickly moved up the ranks. And they, because I was working on campus, paid for my master's in human resource development, which is an adult education major. Yeah. So really a gift. That's great. That's great. And did your husband continue in medical school? What was it like to be a spouse of a medical school student? He did. It was really crazy. So we were married at the end of his first year of medical school. And it was really fun the second year because we could drive into campus together. He was still at that point in second year of med school. You're just taking classes and stuff. So little, very inexpensive apartment. Uh And we could spend a lot of time together. But then third and fourth year of medical school are really very busy. And Mm so, and I was actually at that point doing my master's on the weekends in the executive program. So those were tough years, but we did it together and he discerned that his interest was in emergency medicine. And so then he began to kind of, as you do look at residency programs around the country. Mm -hmm. And we were very blessed that 
he matched his top choice, which was at UCLA, which brought us back out to California oh, to be great. near my family. Yeah. Good, good. Well, and then when did children come along? What was some of that discernment and adventure as, as children came? Well, our eldest son, Eric, was born in 1991, and Greg was then at the start of his third year of residency, which is Mm -hmm. a crazy, crazy time. (laughs) And I'm going to say all of my my studying at Vanderbilt and my work experience there got me a great job in California, which I decided to retire from. As, Mm. As Eric was born, I think I was traveling a lot, and Greg's schedule was just so crazy as a third year resident. So we really looked at this is going to be a a temporary compromise and I'm going to stay home and be with him this year and we'll figure it out after that. And we just ended up that that was what I did. I became a stay at home mom. And three years later, we brought little Adam into our family. And my life for those early years of being a mom was really about getting them to school. At that time, Greg wasn't in the church. My dad kind of teased me at the time that I met the one kind of non-Catholic who wasn't on the football team and (laughs) (laughs) in love with them. So I was really from an early phase of the boys being born. I sort of intellectually knew. And when you marry a non-Catholic, you do take a vow that you'll raise your children in the faith. But I don't think really until they came along that I understood what that meant. Yeah. And and also really how challenging it was going to be. And Greg was so supportive, but he was crazy busy. And it's it's hard to take kids to mass anytime, but when mm-hmm. you're doing it on your own, it's really mm-hmm. hard. So we were really fortunate that we settled into a parish in Fresno that had a great Catholic school. And I really think that it's there that not only did my kids fall in love with their faith as part of their Catholic education. And not only did I grow a lot closer to Jesus, but Greg actually came into the church as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how sometimes it's the presence of children, their own childlike wonderings and, and simple faith, but yet very profound questions that we would see this sometimes when I was in the parish that children would have a um, there'd be a unique opportunity to bring people back to their faith or to deepen their faith sometimes for the first time or just have a greater understanding of the Catholic Church. I think that's that's a good opportunity for us all to pay attention to. I think it was it's one of my great regrets now that I was really focused on what I perceive to be a failure on my part. And this mm. is I this is probably something I've taken to confession on multiple times that <laughs> relates to the sin of pride that Greg's, his relationship with Jesus and with the church, I thought, well, what am I not doing right that he mm. doesn't, hasn't wanted this for himself or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it really was, I think the year um, before, when uh, the, before our second son's first communion, was really when I began to pray about my own relationship with my faith, which had always been there, but it had sort of been something that was gifted to me as a child. Sure. And that was the point at which I really looked at what's my relationship with Christ and how can I pass this along to my family if I don't have it more for myself? And during that year, I was invited to be a sponsor for someone in RCIA. And Mm. it was through the RCIA process, even though I was the sponsor and not the candidate or catechumen, that 
I really fell in love again with the church and all it had to offer. And so I really began to let go of what's everyone else's journey and focused in on what's my journey, the one that I can control. Sure. Yeah. The the one that you could control. Yeah. Yeah. And it was during that same time that actually, (laughs) if you've ever kids in Catholic school or really any school, you Mm -hmm. get tapped to do a lot of volunteer work at school. Mm -hmm. And I had been invited to serve on a committee that I really didn't enjoy. And I think in the fall of my eldest son's first grade year, our principal put out in the newsletter, we're looking for someone to help volunteer with the school website. Ah. And I didn't know anything about that, but I decided that's going to be better than this committee. That I <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I volunteered and, and right around that same time was when I came to what's become my life's work, which is I registered a domain name, catholicmom.com. And I I thought I'm going to spend this year learning how to do web design and learning about my faith. And Mm. that was in late 1999. The website was launched in 2000. And I have not looked back since. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful how sort of the Holy Spirit moves through <laughs> through different things in our lives and, and guides us to where, where God's calling us to be. How did that evolve from just something you were doing on the side and, 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 and helping the school get their website into this became really your full-time career and work? So the first five years, I didn't even use my name. My I used my first name only. Mm-hmm. And it was the really crazy days of the internet. First of all, dial up. So if you wanted to put a picture on your website, it was sort of wait 10 minutes and say <laughs> a decade of the rosary while you're making dinner. Hopefully the modem doesn't wait. hang up. Yeah. It was so bad. And I had zero technology experience. I think I could check my email and make a greeting card, you mm-hmm. know, and it was really, I did not know what I was doing, but I knew immediately that it was resonating with people. We had you're too young to remember this, but back in the day, they put these little hit counters on the bottom of websites and you mm-hmm. could see the number of people that were coming to oh, the site. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and really quickly, without any kind of advertising or anything, just by word of mouth and definitely the Holy Spirit and our ladies intercession, there was immediately an audience for this. Mm. And it was really interesting that one of the early decisions that I made was to involve other voices. And so I started asking other people, do you want to write something for this? I, I don't know how to write and I'm trying to write and, mm-hmm. you know, if you're interested. And so we started right away gathering other contributors and we built what was then a message board kind of pre-social media days. Sure, and sure. it just grew and grew and to the point where I think... In 2007, I launched an early edition of what's now our podcast for Catholic Mom. And that really began to open up all kinds of amazing things. And I can directly tie my writing career to a podcast episode. I had the opportunity to interview Moira Weiss for our podcast back then. Okay. And Moira had written a book called Miles from the Sideline that was about raising their family. This and is Coach, Coach was, Charlie Weiss's yes, wife. Her, yes, okay. his wife. Yes. And it was a great interview, a great conversation, a lot like what we're having today. Uh-huh. And right around that time was happening the Archdiocese of Los Angeles Religious Education Congress. And so 
I was getting ready to go to Congress as an attendee, which I love to do. It's a great place to learn Mm -hmm. and experience worship in all kinds of different ways. And as I was getting ready to go to Anaheim for Congress, I received an email from a gentleman named Tom Grady, who was then the head of the publishing house at Ave Maria Press, Mm -hmm. which is there at the University of Notre Dame. It's a wonderful Holy Cross apostolate. And Tom asked me if I would like to go to coffee at Congress. And so I thought, for sure, first of all, free coffee. Who doesn't want that? Right. But then also, he's probably going to give me some more free books, which will be really awesome. (laughs) And so we sat down for coffee. And he said, after some preliminaries, he said, I think you have a book in you. And I would like to I would like to be your publisher. Hmm. And. I promptly spit out my coffee all over the table and said, I do not know how to write a book. I don't know what I'm doing. But um, he really held my hand and gave me the most amazing editor to work with. She's still my editor now, a woman named Eileen Ponder, who Mm -hmm. went on to have her own son that would go to Notre Dame and be in the marching band. Mm -hmm. And we put out my first book about a year and a half after that. And That was an amazing journey into having published work. I thought I would have one book and that would be it, but it's just gone on and on into different things. And to have my work published right there under the shadow of the dome at Ave Maria Press was just the greatest gift ever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Were there moments when you took stock of all these developments in your life and just marveled at God's grace and intervention. I mean, it doesn't sound like from the get-go you envisioned all that much of this, but at certain moments you were looking around and, like you said, your work and, and your faith was out there for a lot of people to encounter. I do that every day. And believe me that those early days of Catholic mom were not because I thought, I have all this to pontificate about and uh-huh. I know what I'm doing, so everyone should come and read this site. It was really wow, this is so important to me, but it's so hard. Mm. And I really need fellowship around me to live this journey. And I think, honestly, that's why it resonated with people was because there was sort of this growing understanding that the internet could be a place where we could come together in community to grow in our faith. And I have always come at my my work, I think, with what I try to have is a really profound sense of humility and awe at how God has interceded in so many ways Mm -hmm. with just this amazing opportunity, not only to grow in faith, but to connect with people for whom this is so important and that it keeps coming back to the University of Notre Dame as well. Because that is going to come back into the story again, just a little bit. So if you had to describe Catholic Mom to someone who's never visited the site or encountered that work, what would that what would that description sound like? What it's grown into is this fully fledged web community. And we certainly have the website, which eventually became a blog. Mm-hmm. We now have close to 150 contributors. They're all volunteers. They are all around the country and in other countries as well. We've got every form of social media that you could possibly use. <laughs> we have two podcasts now that we run. And we also have our own imprint with Ave Maria Press, CatholicMom.com Books. And in 2017, we had the amazing blessing of becoming yet another part of the Congregation of Holy Cross because I was, by that point, we had moved to Los Angeles um, Mm -hmm. from my husband's job, which this is kind of a funny full circle thing, too. He discerned and eventually became the director of emergency medicine at UCLA, which is where he 
graduated from his residency. So we mm-hmm. came back to LA and that year yeah. I was really thinking, gosh, by this point I was speaking a lot internationally and had several books and really thinking, I don't have time to run this on my own day to day. And so I was really discerning, do I shut down the website? What am I going to do? And I had a good conversation with a good friend of mine who was then working for Holy Cross Family Ministries, which is an apostolate of the Congregation of Holy Cross there Mm -hmm. in Northeastern Massachusetts. And Holy Cross Family Ministries and Family Rosary was founded by Venerable Patrick Payton, who's a wonderful Holy Cross priest. And I told her about my concerns about how overwhelmed I was. And she said, would you ever consider letting us take Catholic mom and make it part of Holy Cross Family Ministries? And we would want you to stay on board as a consultant, but we would run everything and you would have more resources and your reach would really be global. And so Mm. we did that in 2017. The website and the attendant ministries were acquired by Holy Cross Family Ministries and Father Peyton's blessings are now all over the work that we do at Catholic Mom. Yeah. A few seasons ago, we had Father David Guffey on, and he talked about Father Patrick and the movie and uh, the different things that the Holy Cross Family Ministries does. Well, And I think that that struggle, that, that sort of moment of decision, I think a lot of people feel that. And I certainly marvel at, at my own wife. We have We have four boys, and there's just there seems to be a special pressure with Catholic moms to to just balance so many things that you're in those early years trying to attend to the, the children's very real needs. Some women are able to stay at home, others are working full-time careers and and have to find that balance. And for those of us who are people of faith, you're also trying to pass along that deposit faith in, in the unique way that that's taking place in your in your own family. What are some of the lessons you've heard from moms who have found some semblance of balance or at least found a way through some of those really difficult moments where you have to give up some things and reprioritize? Yeah, I think it's an ongoing saga. The technology may change over time, but I think my mom and her mom before her had issues that were similar to the ones that that I faced and mm-hmm. throughout my life. And I think that one of the greatest things that I try to share in a consolation sense with the women who come, who discover us for whatever reason, because they Google us or we're referred to them or whatever, is that the the greatest gift that we can give to our families is to really develop our own relationship with God Hmm. and that we can't give what we don't have. I think a lot of us use that sort of put your own air mask on analogy about a lot of things. And really, (laughs) I think for the, for the faith, it's really that way that we can intellectually teach the faith to our children. I can read a book to them and teach them precepts. But if I don't have my own ever deepening relationship with Jesus Christ and with his church, that doesn't, that's not going to resonate with anybody. Mm -hmm. And so I always try to tell moms, even if it's a minute at the beginning of the day before your feet hit the floor and you're running to a million different things, whether it's the sign of the cross or one of the things that I say every morning in prayer, which is, yes, God, I give you my yes, as our Blessed Mother did. Begin your day with prayer and then 
it's not going to be often that you find an hour to get to the Adoration Chapel every day yeah, or yeah. even a daily mass. And so stop pressuring yourself so much. I'm not going to say that those things aren't important. They are. But at a certain point, whether you work outside the home or you work full time inside the home, mm-hmm. every woman is so busy in her life and we can get so we can pressure ourselves so much that we begin to do do prayer rather than experience prayer. So mm-hmm. it's something that we're crossing off our to do list and it doesn't benefit anyone, I don't think. Yeah. And and just to to find those moments of prayer and I think to realize that there are different seasons of life and sometimes especially those early years of motherhood and parenthood it's just it's just such a season of life that you you can't attend to long long periods of prayer in the same way you're not sleeping necessarily very well and and, and to kind of give give yourself the grace of factoring all those things in when you think about where is my relationship with God or or how am I finding God even in some of the more mundane tasks or things in, in, in sort of those the weariness of parenthood and also to realize that there that season will pass at some point and 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 your your life will enter into a new phase so can you talk about that progression of as as you talked about being a young mom and then deepening your faith but then as your children grew and you had more flexibility how did your relationship with god change over those years Yes, it's been so amazing to see since the the advent of my speaking where God's taken me, not only in our country, but also just internationally. Mm-hmm. One great gift of my writing has been that I've been able to connect with different nonprofit organizations, including Catholic Relief Services and Unbound, which is mm-hmm. a sponsorship program, and now Cross Catholic, and I have traveled internationally several times to Africa, to Asia, to India, to South America and Central America to see the work of the church and these nonprofits being done in these different places. Mm -hmm. And it's such a gift to, first of all, to travel and to connect with people, but also to recognize the universality of the faith that we share and how the expression of that faith is both very different in other places and also very wonderfully similar. <laughs> you know, you can attend the mass in Tanzania or mm-hmm. in Quezon City in the Philippines and have no idea what the words that are being spoken are and yet have the sense of the universal church and the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And yeah. that is just a profoundly wonderful gift in my life now. Yeah, it's beautiful. It, there, It is a unique experience of faith to go to a mass where you almost you understand almost none of the words but you know exactly what's happening because the the things that are outside of language you you certainly recognize so as you have gone out and now spoken all over the country internationally what are some of the messages that you have brought along as part of your speaking roles it's interesting when I speak. Well, first of all, I have to say about my international travel and working these, with these nonprofits. Early on, I thought that those trips were about going to help the people that I was going to see. Uh-huh. That, you know, through helping those organizations to connect more deeply with new people, to follow them and to know of their work, that 
we would be blessing the people that we went out to see. And I do think that that's true. But I also recognized really early on that I was being so fed in those mm-hmm. places and that even among the poorest of the poor in these places, that I was really on the receiving end of these great gifts from the people that we were connecting with. And I, I've been into homes and kitchens and places just that I never dreamed I would be. And it's taught me so much about hospitality and generosity and really being grateful for the gifts Mm -hmm. that we're given. Mm -hmm. And most of the people that I've connected with would never really think about how, Mm -hmm. and yet they have so many gifts to give. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that I try to convey now in my speaking is, First of all, that the blessings and the gifts that we have in our life may not be necessarily material and that we should always be looking for them and always be looking to connect with the divine in those moments. And whether that's overtly through a liturgical ceremony or inadvertently just in a conversation that you may have, I always, when I go places, try to do the work of the women that I meet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I have been fired from so many jobs. <laughs> I've I've cultivated and processed soybeans in, in Kenya and I've basket wove in the Philippines and I've I've done things in India and all these other places. I always try to go out and do those messy jobs that women are doing in those places, often with a BB strap to their front and a mm-hmm. bucket of water on their head. And I'm just so astounded at the dignity of women and the strength of what they do mm-hmm. and how in every community they find ways to support each other. So mm-hmm. when I go out to speak, I'm I'm always going from a position of I'm here to be with you. I have a message to share, but I'm also anxious to learn from you, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those lessons we learn from seeing people in other countries and cultures we we take with us and i i'm particularly thinking about suffering because being from a a very developed country in the united states we really are very privileged and, and have a lot of wealth collectively and it's in going to some of those other places where you realize as you said, that people may not realize the kind of difficult conditions and, and the kind of the suffering they're going through, but has their suffering and, and seeing even their joy in the midst of challenges like that, has that helped you in your own life? Oh, 100%. First of all, it's made me, I hope, more hospitable because I'm I'm an, I'm a bad cook and a nervous hostess, and I've always thought I I don't know if I can invite somebody over because my home doesn't look like Instagram and mm-hmm. blah blah blah. Well, I've been into places and eaten meals and places that are some of the most simple things in the world that are the most delicious experiences that I've ever had because of the company of the people that I was with. So it's really taught me to open my home. I've also seen the unfortunate effects of things like climate change Mm -hmm. and traveling, particularly in some regions of Africa, has really taught me about the impact that our families' decisions around things like what we eat and what we consume and what we share with others really has a lasting impact on our world. And Mm. it's entered into my writing, both for adults and now for children that I write for as well. And I think I'm always just, my antenna is always up to what is what is God giving me in this moment and how can I share that with other people? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. Of course, another season of life is to see your own children go through their educational and career journeys. We discussed the fact that 
you fulfilled a dream of your dad's by coming to Notre Dame. Was Notre Dame a part of your own kids' journeys educationally, or where did they end up? Both of my my boys discerned other options. My my eldest was actually admitted to the university and ended up going to this goofy school called Harvard ah. instead, which I think I'm one of the moms who's like, why would you make that decision? <laughs> <laughs> that was actually, so we didn't have either boy, boy go to Notre Dame. I am a proud aunt and I'm godmother of a current Notre Dame sophomore. Shout out to Evan. But our kids didn't go to Notre Dame. And interestingly, it was part of a a deepening lesson as I became an older mom that's been very important to me, which is that my kids will make their own decisions in Mm -hmm. life. And while I can advise them and talk with them about things, at a certain point, our job as parents, just as my parents did this with me, is not to dictate their life for them, but to sit back and, and wonder at what God's doing in their lives. And so neither boy is at Notre Dame, and that was God's plan. Mm-hmm. And so while I do have a certain amount of questioning God because <laughs> I would have loved that for them, I also see the friends that they made and the connections that they have had and how their own unique experiences have made them into the people that they are now as adults. Mm-hmm. And one thing I'm trying to do now as they are older and now as I have my granddaughters as well is to really recognize that their life is to live on their own, that my job is to respect their privacy, to always support and pray for them, to be their biggest cheerleader, but really to just sit back and see what's going to happen with them, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you kind of see them go through their own transitions in life and help them the best you can, but then I realize that they're they're going to experience some of those things for the first time. At this point in your life now, you've you've accomplished so many things in your career and with your faith. What what is your relationship with God like right now? Well, it's been very challenging the last several years, mm-hmm. as every relationship with God is. But I know God's love is so much bigger than my ability to question why things happen. My mom was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease mm. several years ago, and unfortunately, during COVID, her her disease became very, very bad, and she passed away in the spring of 2021. Mm. And my daddy followed her the following year to to heaven. Mm. He passed away of Lewy body dementia. Oh, wow. They're very young. They were both only 81. And we spent, I spent a good amount of time really actively caregiving my parents. Yeah. Both of them had extra support, but anybody who has an aging parent in your life that caregiving takes all kinds of forms and that that can be an excruciatingly difficult journey. So I'm happy to say that both of them are now resting in peace at Cedar Grove Cemetery at the University of Mm -hmm, Notre Dame. mm -hmm. We thought, what a perfect place for them to be. So they are there. They have an excellent view of the football stadium and (laughs) the Golden Dome from their mausoleum space. Mm And Greg and I will be there someday right next to them. Mm -hmm. And then in the spring of this year, so about a year after daddy's passing, I was diagnosed with invasive breast cancer. Oh, wow. So that's been my journey the last several months. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind giving us some insight into that, the kind of the, the shock of the diagnosis and and then how that factored into your prayer life and, and in the midst of this cross that you were carrying over the past several months, what what sure. what impact did that have on your faith? 
it's been a continual impact. So the first thing I want to say is that pay attention mm-hmm. to your own self-care. Mm-hmm. It's particularly important for women who are so busy with so many things in life. And we think, oh, I'll just deal with this when I'm not so busy. So I mentioned the writing of my first book when I shortly after I signed my first contract with Ave Maria Press during the writing of my first book, I was I was then diagnosed with breast cancer, which was at a lot earlier okay. stage. Okay. And it actually became part of the book that I was writing. And I sort of got through that and did those five years and didn't really look back. But yeah. I've always paid attention since then. So that was 15 years ago. And last January, I was just noticing that my body was looking a little bit different. The breast that I'd had that cancer in, the shape was changing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I have regular mammograms and normal doctor's appointments, but I thought this is not, something looks different. Mm-hmm. So I called my doctor and long story short, it was a, a far different diagnosis this time around mm. and a lot more serious. So that diagnosis, thank goodness, we I went in when I did because it was a, a fairly large cellular tumor that had spread and interestingly wasn't caught on a mammogram. It wasn't until I had a diagnostic mm. MRI that they figured out what was going on. And that led to a double mastectomy and reconstruction in the end of March Mm -hmm. and then to six weeks of radiation in May and June. And now I'm into the kind of chemical part of my treatment, which is a daily two, two pills that I will take for the next five years. Mm -hmm. And it's an entirely different journey. First of all, the diagnosis is different than last time around, but also I have this abiding sense of peace during this. I turned 60 years old, Mm -hmm. which is amazing. Yeah. And both a sense of, wow, I'm a little bit more cognizant of my own mortality Mm. at this point (laughs) in my life than I was last time around, but also just a really big sense of gratitude for everybody that's taking care of me, for the amazing people that have been praying for me, Mm -hmm. for the ability to to have great health care. And also the ability to take a little pause and slow things down a little bit in my work, which I don't do willingly, but mm-hmm. it was, it's was it been good for me. And as you have encountered not only the medical personnel, but other people going through similar journeys with cancer, has that been, has that bolstered both of your, your faith and your emotional well-being? Oh, for sure. When, one thing that started before my diagnosis was that I actually... Some of your listeners may be familiar with Arson Day Visitor, which mm-hmm. is a great national publication. I had started a writing assignment with them, which I would be a, a monthly contributor on the topic of aging, which there's that's very humbling, right, <laughs> to be asked to do that. But it's it's really interesting that I'm seeing a lot of things that are happening now through the prism of this. How am I as where I am right now in my journey as a 60 year old woman, as somebody who's in this process? How am I looking at what the opportunities are to find grace in these moments of challenge, not Mm. only in the, we talk a lot about redemptive suffering Mm -hmm. and Catholicism, not only in that, but just the opportunities to be united with people in prayer along this way. And I think one decision that I made, I've written about this, but one decision that I made during my radiation treatments was that I was going to leave my phone in the locker. Yeah. And I know that anybody who's ever gone through radiation or treatment for anything, you know that when you go to the doctor, there's always a significant amount of waiting to Mm -hmm, be done. mm -hmm. And I decided that I would try to intentionally pray during that time. And so 
the waiting room at the radiation center at UCLA is actually in the form of a circle. And all the patients sit in the circle and you can't help but look at each other. And most people are looking at their phones. But I started counting the heads um, in the waiting room and just praying a little rosary on the heads of the different patients Mm -hmm. and trying to pray during that time, which I began to call my waiting rosary for whoever was there that day, for whatever they were facing. And half the people are patients and half of them are caregivers, which comes with their own form of stress. But just inviting our ladies in our session for whatever they needed. And I found that I was actually wishing for more waiting time. (laughs) It was such a gift to focus in on that. And then I carried every day intentions with me when I went onto the radiation table, specific prayer requests of friends and other people that I knew that were dealing with diagnoses that are challenging and always praying as well for my parents, both for the repose of their soul and also for their intercession, too. Well, that's beautiful. Yeah, there's something about suffering we wouldn't necessarily desire or go into it willingly, but there's really an opportunity there sometimes when we unite our sufferings with others to, to find God there in a unique way than when we might not have otherwise had we been perfectly healthy and out and doing our regular thing. It definitely makes you look at what are my greatest priorities in life. Mm -hmm. I'm not at fear. My prognosis has an excellent healing rate and Mm -hmm. I'm confident that I have great care. But it does make me think about what are what are the priorities that I have for the time that I have remaining in my life, whether Mm -hmm. that's a day or 40 years, which I hope it is. Mm -hmm. What am I going to do with this time? And what is the most important way for me to spend my time? Is it really for me to scroll through Twitter Mm -hmm. or X or whatever we call it now? (laughs) Or is it really to be fully present to the people around me, to the unexpected ways that God is using me in my life, which I, if I had set out to do all the things that I've done in life, there's no way this would have happened. Mm -hmm. But I think really coming at life from a perspective of just use me, God. I'm going to give you this yes, as our blessed mother did, and may your will be done. Mm-hmm. Well, and speaking of our blessed mother and Notre Dame, she certainly is a model of motherhood and holiness. So whether it's Mary or others, who have been some of the inspiring people in your life who have taught you what it is to seek after holiness? Definitely our Blessed Mother is my number one top saint and role model. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say my own parents, Pat and Anne, are my greatest non-canonized saints. (laughs) (laughs) I believe that they definitely embody what I want to live in my own life, both how to love and also for the, the relationship that they had with God and with one another is what I hope for Greg and I. And the way that they treated us as their children is the way that I want to be in relationship with my own kids. Certainly now my work connects me with amazing women who are just doing remarkable work. And so I have no shortage of great role models, especially our team at Catholic Mom. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm remarkably connected to our Holy Cross saints. So Venerable Patrick Payton, St. Andre, Blessed Basil Moreau, just that community of intercessors that keeps bringing me back to what is happening at Notre Dame is just pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for offering those. As you think about seeking after holiness in your own life, you shared your, your waiting rosaries, your different moments of prayer when your kids are young. What has worked for you, so to speak, as you have grown closer to God over the course of your life? 
Well, I have to give a huge shout out to the work of the Alumni Association and Faith and Tea because I begin my days every day with a pretty deep dive into the daily scriptures. Mm-hmm. And that includes both reading and journaling about the readings that we are doing at Mass, but also at Catholic Mom, we have a daily reflection. And then I also pray with the, the Faith and Tea reflection that comes into my email inbox every day. And I, I really love getting that every day because it really starts my morning with a thought of how other people in so many different stations of life are doing the same exact thing that I am. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an amazing thing when you're connected to the university, how it keeps coming up throughout your life that it's not just the friends that you had in college, but every parish that you go into, <laughs> community leaders, so many people have a connection to um, Notre Dame. So for me, my morning time in the word and my morning journaling, spiritual journey is is really, really important to me every day. If I skip it because I'm too busy, that's not going to go well. That's yeah. <laughs> not going to end well. And then for me, Daily Mass, whenever I can get there, is, is just such a great blessing because that time with the Eucharist and just a time for me, I, I go to my Daily Mass parishes in Beverly Hills and what can happen in the space of a 25-minute Mass mm-hmm. in the Eucharist mm-hmm. is just profoundly miraculous to me. So those are some of the benchmarks. And then a daily moment of reconciliation at the end of the day, I keep a gratitude journal by my bed. And so a chance to look back and do an examine of an examination of conscience to look back at where God interceded with my day, but mostly to count my blessings. And they're so numerous. Yeah. Well, thank you for offering those things. As a final question, just given your own background and, and life's work, If you're talking to the average Catholic mom today, is there a word of encouragement that you could offer, um, a bit of advice or something for the Catholic moms out there who are really trying to fully live their faith in our time? Yes, I would say, number one, do not give up on your dreams and what God can do amazingly through you. Give God your yes, and you will see profound, remarkable things, fruit that's born both in your home and outside of it. So don't give up on dreaming, even though you may be in a season where you think you're, you're waiting a lot for those dreams to come true. Definitely focus on your own relationship with Christ, whether that's loving God through the love that you pour onto your family, onto your children, onto your coworkers, whatever it is, recognizing divine in those little moments of your day. And know that there's such great gratitude for the work that you do. (laughs) Your children are not going to tell you very often, hey, mom, you changed that diaper really well. (laughs) That was an amazing dinner. Or thanks for picking me up after this late night football practice. So I'm going to say thank you for what you do. And if you feel alone and in need of companionship or in need of extra prayer, I hope you'll reach out to me. My my name is on this podcast. It's Lisa Hendy. And you can send me an email to lisahendy at gmail.com. And I will pray with you. And sometimes it's easier to share those burdens, the things that weigh most heavily on our heart with somebody who is not right in our face all the time. So I love to be that person for the moms out there. Well, I really appreciate that. The, the openness to help walk with other moms out there to the openness to be on the podcast with me today. I really appreciated getting to hear more of your story. And just thank you for all that you've done on behalf of the church and the Congregation of Holy Cross and moms out there. I know you have done so much and will continue to do so much to really bolster the faith of so many mothers and families in our time. So thank you, Lisa, for all that you've done. 
Well, thank you. And I still have on my on my wish list to come to Notre Dame and get my master's in theology. Wow. So maybe I'll be back on campus some days. We'll be ready and waiting. <laughs> <laughs> well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith in Deep podcast. As Lisa mentioned, we have a daily reflection that you can subscribe to at faith.nd.edu slash sign up. And we also encourage you to subscribe to the podcast to share this story with any moms or others out there who might really benefit from it. And just to say thank you to all those moms who have sacrificed over the years for all of us, for our faith and for our well-being. Until next time, you'll be in our prayers. God bless you all. Mm-hmm.